Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. Hello, I'm Stuart Bell, a member of the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore and co-chair of the Financial and Fintech Committee. Welcome to our second episode in this mini-series where with a select group of my fellow members, you will hear from our experts as they share their latest insights and takeaways from this year's Singapore FinTech Festival. Each of the five episodes in this series will focus on different topics of interest, such as economics, digital infrastructure, green and sustainable finance, investor strategies and priorities, and finally, talent development and founders journeys. We hope you enjoy this podcast. So here to today, today to discuss day two of the Singapore FinTech Festival, I'm joined by Russell Toop and Paul Landless from the committee. Welcome, Russell and Paul. Day two was billed as the Infrastructure Summit and covered such things as digital infrastructure foundations, dis- distributed ledger and digital currency, AI and 5G, cybersecurity, and regulations and policy. So a lot, a lot of ground covered. Um, Russell, if I could start with you, what, what, what were some of the highlights for you? What, what did you attend and any kind of uh, thoughts? Uh, certainly uh, an interesting uh, day in particular. I mean, my, my background is sort of financial markets. So I, I was naturally drawn to the crypto uh, interviews and discussions in particular uh, a conversation with the Winklevoss twins. So if you're not uh, familiar with them, uh, uh, Winklevoss uh, brothers were uh, the original founders of Facebook, and uh, you may have uh, seen the movie. But uh, they've uh, moved into uh, and set up a, a co-founded a firm called the Gemini Trust, which is a trust firm within the cryptocurrency space. Uh, they set that up back in 2015 when uh, Bitcoin was at uh, the lonely price of around about 450 US dollars. I think uh, yesterday it's peaked at uh, you know 19,000, nearly 20,000 uh, dollars, um, and you know that that's a 97 percent increase in the last six months. So there's certainly a huge amount of volumes going into uh, crypto right now, and this was an opportunity to, to learn a little bit more about their thoughts of why uh, and what is driving that growth. Uh, they are looking to set up a office and company in Singapore. And they did note that uh, they found that uh, getting the license in Singapore, uh, they really found working with the MES gave them a confidence and clarity in the regulations to set up uh, here. Um, what, what we've seen over the last uh, few months is a huge increase in institutional investors coming into this space. Um, I think there was $429 million uh, going into cryptocurrency products and funds. Uh, And this is one of the second biggest weekly totals of all time. Uh, I think historically back in 2019, uh, only $2.57 billion uh, was held in crypto assets. So we can see uh, this has now gone up to $15 billion, which is a, a, a massive figure. Um, and the, what is driving that? Well, you know, it's, it's people are certainly concerned uh, about uh, their, their money value um, and the historic place for looking for money value or flight to safety was gold. 
Uh, and the differences they pointed out is that, uh, you know, the amount of gold available uh, is, is obviously still continuing. We can still mine more uh, gold. However, with crypto, uh, there is a limit. Uh, the total is 21 billion uh, Bitcoins can be mined. and We're currently at about 18.5 billion. So there's certainly uh, supply and demand uh, drivers there that are going to uh, uh, help increase the demand. Uh, also, when you look at uh, you know central banks issuing uh, uh, printing money, there is a concern that currencies are devaluing. Uh, if you look at jet debt to D uh, GDP uh, in the U.S. alone, it's looking at 135% uh, with uh, you know potentially record unemployment. And if you do a comparison to World War II, that was only at 121% with full employment. Uh, so these are the, the, the drivers that are making people look at Bitcoin as an alternative uh, flight to safety uh, product. Yeah, I actually also also uh, watched that. Uh, it was interesting in how they were comparing. I think they've come up recently went public with a valuation of something like 500,000 US per Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, I think that's premised on replacing gold as the uh, the world's uh, or or an, a, an additional store of value, uh, in addition to gold or replacing gold. So um, yeah, a, a very interesting uh, session, I thought as well. Um, yeah, I think uh, and just uh, on that, you know, looking at they mentioned that uh, the financial market is catching up and trying to meet with those uh, financial market regulations, but. The futures and options are now available on CME, CBOE, and ICE exchanges. Also, record high volumes in November, uh, and are hitting almost fifty percent of the volume of spot, which is uh, phenomenal. Um, Paul, turning to you, what were the uh, some of the highlights uh, for you? I just quickly add, I too also watched that session. Part, part the reason why is while I was very involved in that CME futures contract, I sort of helped design the. Risk disclosure in that document, and I and when CME first started marketing that contract about three years ago, I was asked to come up with the risk disclosure, and I thought, how does one write the risk factors on investing in Bitcoin? Um, but but also, secondly, um, at Clifford Chance, where I work, um, we we set up Nakamoto, which is the Bermuda-based uh, captive insurer which Cameron and Tyler um, have set up. It's a, it's a 200 million insurance fund dedicated to the Gemini um, tokens. So, so we, we sort of set that up about a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, and again, and, and often as a lawyer, you're asked to do things never quite knowing um, how a business is going to go or how a futures contract might be traded. And so, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you sort of see clients um, and businesses expand. Um, and so, so that was one of the draws as to um, why I attended that. And I think one of the other things that really caught me about both of them, they said that, that, that you know, Russell just talked about this near 20,000 um, sort of threshold that we're seeing now on crypto. One of their main messages is in their views, this is just the beginning, you know? So, so I mean, the last year or two has been quite breathtaking, but to them, you know, they, they, I think they were quite, um, relaxed and, and and just saw this as merely the start of a longer journey. Um, I, I, I attended some other sessions looking at um, DLT or blockchain use cases within the capital market space, um, either around um, having fractional bonds 
um, more for retail access, or secondly, um, use cases around um, the, um, using DLT technology to drive primary issuance. And Singapore Exchange has been very active in that space, and a lot of um, exchanges are looking at um, um, uh, DLT um, for assisting um, with issuance, but also maximizing secondary trading and just improving efficiencies and workflows, but also just creating potentially new data points to drive new indices in turn to drive new pricing. Um, and, and, and I think one of the main themes that I took away certainly is that we are definitely moving from uh, POCs and pilots and test cases. We're really working now to see um, consortia set up um, and very much, um, you know, a real growth in the space, but also concern that there's almost too many uh, potential venues that, that liquidity for these differing um, 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 exchange, crypto exchanges or differing um, DLT-based um, opportunities within, within various um, capital markets exchanges all start to create a kind of wait-and-see model where there's this um, um, sort of vicious dilemma around how do we drive adoption when actually we're sort of inadvertently having a kind of machine gun spray um, level of um, first order experimentation that's really starting to cloud the picture as to which venue should I go to for added pricing, added liquidity. So there is this sort of dilemma around should we now aggregate back or connect back these multiple points of liquidity that's starting to emerge either in the crypto exchange space or secondly, around more traditional exchanges with their different DLT use cases. So that, that was a, sort of an interesting theme that I noticed. I think also secondly, coming out of some of the digital banking um, sessions I attended, one with ANTD, and, and, and people will know that the MAS has just announced its digital bank licenses um, in Singapore, which follows those we've seen in Hong Kong, um, and, and all on the back of a wider theme around um, open banking. And we heard about that from Australia yesterday as well, but also following um, the, the UK and Europe experience. One of the first sort of messages was very much to see banking as a service. The, the, I think the sort of psychology is almost a sort of uh, um, assume that you're literally restarting how to provide um, um, banking products, and, and it should just be seen as an extension of a SaaS model. That, that, that you know, what, what does that actually mean if you had to reconfigure um, the business? But also, secondly, the sense that there is no golden road, there is no definitive north star, there is no definitive destination as to how these models will play out, and that the need for collaboration and a more cohesive approach um, is ever more important, that actually uh, there's an element of um, having to adapt and listen to customers, um, be reactive, but not be fixed around a particular destination, a particular model, a particular suite of products, um, which I thought was quite interesting that people sort of see a lot of the business models as being almost self-discovering, um, extremely customer-driven. We heard a lot about the need for customer focus, um, not only in terms of the customer service teams, but just the entire organization of a digital bank. Every member of that organization being customer obsessed 
um, and creating this sort of feedback loop. But it meant that a lot of these digital banking models were not, weren't necessarily fixed around a particular business plan, but, but, but driven by collaboration and testing and, and wider listening with customers, almost self-discovering um, their, their sort of offering. But also thirdly, you know, beyond this idea that digital banking as a service and, and, and this idea of collaboration driving understanding as to um, destination with, with client listening, um, this idea that at the end of the day, there needs to be a lot more focus around scaling up the operations. And to do that, it's not just about APIs, left, right and centre, but, but, but a greater philosophy around externalising all operations of a, of a business. So, so, so that, that, that was, again, that sort of mindset I thought, thought was quite fascinating. And then I think, I think finally, across all the sessions, and I attended the AI you know, should AI be regulated um, session, um, as well as the, the, the digital banking one, crypto one, and some of these um, DLT ones, this, this idea about sustainability, potentially converging with fintech. Um, I mean, there's a lot of um, emphasis around trust and emphasis around um, and ethics and a sort of values-based model for um, a lot of these businesses. Um, with very clear purpose and very clear customer focus. But, but that sort of ethics agenda um, has now sort of entered another space around um, fintech's role with sustainability. And, and I did hear in a, quite a lot of sessions talking about sustainable finance, um, not only in terms of the actual products themselves, but also um, the actual values and behavioral um, setting of, of the business and that how fintech can you know, raise the standards on data, trust, uh, data ethics, AI, reliability and explainability, but also enable sustainable finance by way of data, data analytics, DLT use, use cases, more precision and transparency around use of proceeds, etc. So, so I thought that was interesting. I did not hear that last year or any of the years before. You know, we had heard ethics, um, growing as a key question and customer trust as a key question, but but not this convergence. That was that was another theme that I noticed. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean one of the one of the early sessions I attended was uh, Bill Gates uh, talking about you know, what the COVID nineteen response can teach us about how to scale financial inclusion, and he was talking about one of the aims of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is savings and transactions should be universal. Uh, almost as a as a human right, and he he was quoting some statistics like I think 1.7 billion people or billion adults worldwide still do not have a bank account, um, and that drops to you know 35 percent of of low income uh, countries. Uh, only 35 percent of adults have have bank accounts in those, um, and really the argument has been that it. it Whilst there are many banks in those countries, it's simply not economic for them to reach uh, that network uh, of of people, you know, out in the out in out in the known these, uh, shall we say, um, you know, the branch network would simply be too high, so it's uneconomic to reach them. And this is really where you know a digital solution or a fintech solution could really come in because it's it is much lower cost. Um, you know, it could really be transformational in terms of giving uh, people access through the phone, through through the internet, um, to 
you know, banking facilities, savings, transactions, etc. So I think there's there's still a lot of you know, if you look at 1.7 billion people, um, that's still a you know, there's still a long way to go there. And I think there was another session which I think tied into that um, quite well, um, which I think is would win my award for the best title of a session, which was Planet of the APIs, uh, which uh, I thought was quite humorous. I didn't um, see that, sir. I'll go and look at yeah. that one up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it was talking about how, you know, why are APIs such a, such a focus now? And, and really it's banks, uh, existing banks need to be more connected, if only to acquire customers. We, you know, uh, you know, the larger institutions need to be uh, almost getting into the open source community. That was another theme on, a, on an earlier session as well. Um, you know, it's interesting, Microsoft um, bought GitHub recently, um, which is, you know, the, the, the home of open source. It, it sort of sort of points towards this much more uh, collaborative way of working, as, as you mentioned, Paul. Um, and really, for, for, for businesses to focus on what, what is their core and non-core? And, and focus on their core and where where they've where they've got weaknesses. Look to partner with someone that has a strength to complement mm. that weakness mm. and really mm. build up this collaborative uh, oh. model. Um, so, so I think that that's an interesting trend and and one uh, as you mentioned earlier, Paul, as well that I I hadn't seen with such emphasis uh, in previous years. I think I think that's something that came out for me yesterday. Oh. Me too. I think for a while we've heard about, you know, it's fintech disruptive or is it enabler? We've seen the question around organic strategies versus buy-in. We've certainly seen these sort of two-way, three-way combinations emerge, but we're definitely seeing a lot more consortia now. Um, and we're also seeing a lot this sort of philosophy that actually there's sort of a non-selectivity, that actually with this collaboration and partnership philosophy, uh, and this sort of mega API agenda, um, th there's now a sense that actually it shouldn't be about partnering with one or two. It should be almost be partnering with anybody, but the anybody has to be people with niche um, um, expertise. And, and I think one of the themes that I took away was this idea of the end of universal banking that, that came out of the AMTD digital banking session that said that as we go into this digital banking agenda, offering financial inclusion, as you say, Stuart, when we are looking to partner, when we are looking to collaborate, you've got to be out there offering yourself up um, as, as, as a differentiator, that, that you have your specialist niche area and you're looking to combine with others with their specialist niche areas. It's not enough to be a generalist with universal offerings looking to collaborate. Um, it, it's almost as if you're sort of going to a... The, the disco or the proms and you're looking for, for a, a dance on the dance floor, you need to stand out and, and be different in some way. So I thought that was interesting, the sort of reduction of financial services to um, boutique niche players rather than this expansionism of, of a sort of generalist universal model. So, so, so you know, will we see aggregation platforms combining almost mini neobanks with all their differing um, capabilities. I don't know. I don't know, Russell. I don't well, I, I think, um, you know, what I really picked up from one of the sessions was the crypto wallets, you know, and how that can socially help, uh, you know, emerging markets or, or, or countries where, like you said, you know, banks aren't going to venture into those places just uh, because financially maybe just, just not justifiable, whereas, 
something like a crypto wallet and an app works exceptionally well. You know, there's a high phone user uh, uh, quantity of people there and they need a way to transfer money quickly and cheaply. Uh, and also bringing back that money into the country. So even the central banks and governments are interested to ensure that their foreign workers are not being, uh, you know, uh, taken advantage of uh, when, when they're transferring their hard-earned uh, wages back home to the families that they have. So I thought from the social side, that's very interesting how these products can help. And and, and I was detecting a little bit of um, regulatory tension also, this idea that as regulators become more engaged with what their policy should be around facilitating innovation, there is this um, risk of overreach or risk of inadvertent um, obstacles or, or sort of they're almost creating financial exclusion in respect of you know retail access to, 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 to DeFi or other areas that you, start, you may actually lock out um, certain um, parts of the market just when the innovation is trying to maximize inclusion, the regulatory response might actually inadvertently force people to, to darker, dark fintech markets, if you will, or unregulated areas, or um, engender exclusion or lock in an exclusion space. So, um, you know, there's this sort of tension that regulators need to facilitate, need to provide certainty. And I think that the Winklevoss twins talked about regulatory certainty improving, as you said, Russell, celebrating the MAS's sort of guidance, but, but you know, wanting more regulatory certainty and wanting that engagement, but at the same time, everyone being sensitive to the sustainability agenda and this access agenda and this financial inclusion agenda, not to inadvertently worsen the mission, you know. So, so I noticed that tension um, through some of the sessions as well. Yes, yeah, definitely. I think you know technology is going to be the key there uh, to to try and abide by local rules and regulations that may not change. So uh, certainly, you know, the KYC, AML side of things, and biometrics, and how that's going to help uh, accommodate uh, uh, dealing with those rules and making sure that they're still compliant. So um, certainly, we'll, we'll see a big change in the year to come. I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that, uh, Russell. I think, uh, I mean, some of the things, we've, some of the topics we've been talking about, uh, if I look at the agenda for today's sessions, which are around impact, so green and sustainable finance, financial inclusion and responsible tech, I think all themes that we've picked up on from yesterday, I think it will be interesting to see how those topics are developed uh, through the through the various uh, webinars and, and uh, panel discussions that we can watch today. Um, so I think I think I'd like to close um, there by by thanking uh, both Paul and Russell for your contributions today. Very insightful. Thank you. Um, Thank you and sir. I'd also like and I'd also like to remind uh, all our listeners that you can hear this podcast on all the usual platforms such, such as Spotify, Apple, and Google. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. 
For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britcham.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at britcham.org.sg.